The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. All right. Excellent. So, um, th- uh, thank you and welcome to uh, our, 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 our panel discussion. We're actually, we're, we're, del- we're a little bit delayed getting started because um, Darby Tillis um, is, is still on the way. Um, he's stuck in traffic, uh, I guess, with all the, all the bad weather we've been having in Chicago today. But he's very, um, he's very much on the way, and we expect him shortly. Um, so, but welcome to this, this discussion, Fighting the Death Penalty. Yes, we can win abolition. Yes, we can. <laughs> So uh, uh, most of you already know, and, and many of you are finding out this weekend that, that uh, um, socialists oppose the death penalty, not just because it's, it's uh, racist to the core, not just because it's anti-poor, not just because it kills the innocent, not just because it doesn't deter crime, not be- just because it's, it's a barbaric and cruel institution, not just because it's an instrument of terror used by the ruling class against the working and oppressed people in this, in this country, but also because in fighting the death penalty we learn in practical experience the, the important dictum of that, uh, that Karl Marx taught us, which is that the, uh, the uh, uh, liberation of the working class the, is, that will be the self-emancipation uh, of the working class. That is to say, when we fight the death penalty, we come in contact with people like Martina Correa, our first panelist today, the sister of Troy Davis, um, who, who um, has tirelessly put her life and her body on the line to, to, to tell the, the, the important truth about her brother's case, that he was, was framed by an unjust and racist criminal justice system. People like the, the two men who are going to be calling in today, um, Mumia Abu-Jamal, who I think, uh, I, I, for me personally, I, I, I wouldn't be an abolitionist in the same way at all if it wasn't for Mumia Abu-Jamal. His book, Live from Death Row, is not only um, uh, the, the same title of, of, a, of a staple event uh, by the campaign, Tend the Death Penalty, but also put the, the prisoners and the voices of the prisoners back in the center of the abolitionist movement and the fight against the death penalty. Also, Stanley Howard is also going to be calling in today. Stanley Howard, most of you know him from his column in the New Abolitionist, um, uh, Keeping It Real. Also, Stanley was one of the original Death Row 10. Again, another example of death row prisoners themselves um, uh, uh, organizing themselves within prison, declaring themselves the death row ten, and getting their voice out about the horrors of, of torture and 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 barbarism that has been done to them um, to send them wrongfully um, to death row. Um, Stanley Howard, of course, was taken off death row, uh, but as as a mark of, of the fact that the, the ruling class never gives up anything uh, willingly, they're still keeping him in, incarcerated uh, as he continues to struggle um, to, to even. Even though Governor Ryan pardoned him and took him off death row entirely, um, he's still incarcerated and he's still struggling for justice behind bars. And of course, I'm very pleased to to be um, to, uh, to be welcoming uh, uh, again a Marlene Martin, who is the director of the campaign to end the death penalty. Marlene is also the um, the editor and, and a, a frequent uh, writer. In fact, no issue uh, would be complete without her her awesome uh, columns in it. Uh, the the new abolitionist. Um, so, folks, if you haven't gotten the latest edition, definitely don't go home without picking it up. Also, has a great 
um, um, uh, interview uh, section in the, in the middle with uh, um, uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, Abu Jamal, again, who's going to be calling in um, today. So without further ado, um, I'd like to introduce Martina. Um, and uh, yeah, let, let her take it over. so much you know so many people have been coming up to me saying that they're honored to meet me but you know the honor is all mine because it's different when you have someone that doesn't have a family member on death row and they still fight against this cause and you still fight just as passionately as we do so you know um, I'm, I'm so honored that to know all of you I know a lot of your faces and a lot of your names but you know um, I don't want people to always um, always put me up on a pedestal because I feel like I'm just doing the work that so many of us are doing, and sometimes we don't have a voice, and, and we're here to give a voice to those people who are voiceless. So, so I'm just um, as important and not as important some, as some people, but it's all about doing the work. So um, the honor is all mine. So you know, I do appreciate everybody giving me all these long wishes and everything, but um, I want you to know that we're equally as important in this movement. So I'm here to talk to you about my brother, Troy Davis. Does anybody in this room not know about the case of Troy Davis? Well, excellent. <laughs> well, that means I don't have to go into all the little details of the case. So that's really, really good if you could keep me on time. Well, what I just want you to know is that, um, of course, in my brother's case, Troy Anthony Davis on death row in Georgia, Many of you know that Troy was actually um, sentenced to death based on the testimony of nine eyewitnesses. And seven of those witnesses we all know have recanted, citing police and prosecutorial misconduct. One witness said the night of the murder that all he knew was that uh, the shooter was left-handed, but he couldn't identify the shooter. He couldn't identify the shooter two weeks later, two months later, six months later, but then he came to court two years later and said, that's the guy. Mm -hmm. So. You know, it's really amazing how that happens and the ninth eyewitness is the person that actually is a trigger person that went to the police department 20 hours after the murder with a lawyer. You know, we all have these cities where you have a get out of jail free lawyer. Well, he went to court, I um, went to the police department with that lawyer and he pointed the finger at Troy and therefore the case unfolded. But since that time, we've had nine new witnesses that have never been heard in a court of law. Three of them who actually saw the murder and six of them who say that the young man, Sylvester Ray Coles, who was the uh, ninth eyewitness, had bragged about the murder in detail. So not only do you see the seven out of nine, you have nine additional witnesses that have never been heard. But what the Court of uh, Appeals have been saying in Georgia is that, you know, that shouldn't matter. We still have two witnesses. And those two witnesses are enough to execute Troy. And what the prosecution is saying is that if all of these witnesses, which is like 78% of the witnesses, have recanted, then it most likely is because Troy's lawyers forced them to do so. So that is the argument by the state. And when we were in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals a couple of months ago, 
Um, one of the judges, Judge Rosemary Barquette, said to the state prosecutor, she said, if you take out all the witness statements, what evidence do you have against Mr. Davis? And they said, oh, well, we still have Sylvester Red Coles. She said, don't talk to me about Sylvester Red Coles because even his nephew said he's the one that shot and killed the police officer. And the prosecutor said, well, we still have Steve Sanders. And Steve Sanders is the Air Force guy who said that he couldn't identify the shooter that night, two weeks later, two months later, six months later, but came two years later and said, yeah, that's the guy crossing the courtroom. So all they have is Steve Sanders who hasn't recanted. And the only reason that he hasn't recanted is because at that point he couldn't identify anybody, but now he's nowhere to be found. So technically they only have one person out of nine that says that, you know, Troy did this. Now, it's amazing to me that they would think that all of these witnesses who face in Georgia life without parole for perjury in a death penalty case would come forward and said that they lied against somebody knowing that to this day that they could go to prison. Mm -hmm. And the state is saying you should ignore that because they're undesirables and because they're not to be trusted. Most of them have criminal background. Well, they were undesirables and they were had criminal background when they were used to testify against Troy. So why is it that now they want to tell the truth and stand up for Troy that their testimony is not credible? Mm -hmm. So I live in a place where it's amazing how Bob Barr and the 27 prosecutors and federal judges and William Sessions and all these people come up and they're saying that this is wrong to execute Troy. And in Savannah, the media never attacks when white people say that this is wrong to execute Troy, especially conservatives, but now organizations that are of color and, and you have other organizations like the campaign that they think, you know, we, we're just weird and things like that, you know, they will attack us saying that this is reverse racism. You know, so it's really, really amazing what's happening in the city. And because they don't really have anything to fight us with, they brought the victim's son to town. He's blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and he's always on the news opening up a case saying how he misses his father that, you know, and my father's been taken away from me. And his father, he wasn't even born when his father was killed. And so what they're doing is they're trying to deal with the sympathy and empathy of the family and putting family against family, trying to say that my family doesn't care anything about their family. And every time my family speaks in public, we always acknowledge that family first and foremost but they never print that in the newspaper mm -hmm. where we live. Um, they never say that our family has been victimized too. Mm -hmm. And what's amazing to me is I don't know of anybody that's faced execution three times in one year and could possibly, I mean, a year and a half and could possibly face that again. You know, every time my brother faces execution, they have to read the death warrant, how are you gonna be killed, the manner on which you're gonna be killed, and you know, what you want done with your body, and you know, all these other things. And then they, they uh, ask you, do you want to be sedated? And they try to sedate them the whole two weeks while they're waiting on execution. And Troy, you know, has refused. He said, why should I allow you to sedate me? But they want you to be mellow so you'll be comfortable with your execution. And, you know, I think most people are very upset about this case because not only is there a lot of racism involved in this case, not only is this police and prosecutorial misconduct, but the fact that the reason the court is denying us is not based on innocence. It's based on procedure and technicality. It's based on just silly laws saying, well, you should have brought that up. 
1995. Well, if my brother didn't have a lawyer from 1991 to 1996. So when that Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act came into place, and they made that retroactive 10 years, that defied international human rights law. Which means that at which point he got lawyers to defend himself, it was too late at that point. And he could never do anything. But he has no control over that. When you're on death row, you don't have any control over that. But in Georgia is one of the few states in the nation where they don't provide lawyers for post-conviction post appeals for death row inmates. So you can stand up in the prison in a makeshift courtroom that they have and defend yourself. Mm. And then they'll ask you, do you have any witnesses to call? Well, I don't know about you, but I don't know how many damn death row inmates can subpoena witnesses and have them come to the prison and testify on their behalf. So it's really a farce what they're doing. And Georgia wants to remain defiant. We've had five death row exonerations in the state and two are from the county where Troy was convicted under the same prosecutor. The same prosecutor where people are reading this book, The Midnight of Garden of Good and Evil, that's the same prosecutor that prosecuted Troy. And he was cited for prosecutorial misconduct by the Centers for Integrity several times and every time he's cited, he, he takes uh, prosecutorial immunity and he's never brought up on charges. So what we're facing now, June 25th, the U.S. Supreme Court will probably go into a close 527 cases from what the lawyers are getting from the clerks, and they're only going to take between 10 and 15 cases. And it's pretty much like a crapshoot, and we already know how the U.S. Supreme Court works. So if they don't select Troy's case, Troy could be facing another execution date by July 14th. We have our first African-American district attorney in Chatham County who ran on accountability, openness, and the Obama ticket. He would have never won otherwise. And he said he had a lot of problems with Troy's case, but now that he's gotten into office, he won't even take meetings from people in the community that support Troy, black or white. He said he doesn't want to discuss the case. He hasn't even reviewed the case. And when we had some state senators go talk to him a couple of weeks ago, his statement is, he doesn't know if he is willing to mess up the relationship that the district attorney's office has with the police department. And he has to deal with his white constituents where only 2% of the white community even voted for him. So the thing about it is that we're dealing with something where I wish that we didn't even have a district attorney that was from our city because you have the political cliques that you have to deal with. But I know one thing that's going on is that the state of Georgia really wants to kill my brother to set an example. They want us to shut up and sit down and be quiet. You know, um, I get letters and emails from the Paternal Order Police who just came to Savannah, 100 of them, who are, you know, not very desirable um, guys from the rural country. And they demanded the immediate execution of Troy Davis this weekend and then brought the son in and gave him another plaque and you know, woe is me. And then they printed that all in the paper, all in the news. Well, these are the same people that um, come to the courthouse, um, came to my brother's um, you know, pending executions and you know, sitting there with the little nooses in the truck and you know, trying to intimidate people. And it was really amazing because um, one of these guys, his name is Randy, he's a vice president of Paternal Auto Police, and he sent me an email saying, Martina, I know what you're trying to do is a noble cause because Troy is your brother, but Troy is guilty. 
And if you back off, all these other people will back off. They'll execute Troy, and both families can get on with their life. And then in the next sentence, he said, and I know you're battling cancer. My sister had cancer too. So there's like, I'm having a conversation with somebody that's like, oh, well just stop fighting for your brother, we'll kill him. But oh, and my sister has cancer and I can relate to you and your family. But I get these type of emails. I mean, I, I get all the, you know, the nigger bitch emails too. But you know, my thing is, I'm fine with all those threats by email, by phone or by whatever. As long as you don't get in this space, and I tell them all the time, don't let my size fool you, because I am not. <laughs> I am not. I am not a person that backs away from a fight easily. We have men on death row in Georgia. I was telling someone earlier that in Georgia. They've even stopped feeding the death row inmates, but on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, once a day. And they're giving them ration portions because they say they're saving the state money. So the death row inmates don't have anybody to send them money. They, they barely get food. We have so many things going on that's bigger than Troy. But in no place in this, if you have a case that's falling apart, you have no physical evidence, no DNA, no weapon. And in this case, the prosecutor is going around, the former prosecutor, and talking about there's ballistics reports, there's bloody shorts, there's all this other stuff, and none of that exists. Mm -hmm. But yet still, they're able to say and spout this out in the media. So what I would ask you to do, since all of you know about Troy's case, is to make sure that 10 or 15 of your friends know about Troy's case. And they tell 10 or 15 of their friends, and you need to start, you know, we need to start doing other things and thinking outside of the box because Savannah is a, a city that's based on tourism. And my thing is, I want to launch a campaign uh, towards the Chamber of Commerce saying that we will tell everybody we know not to come and patronize your city as long as injustice is taking place in that city. As long as there's a cradle to jail pipeline, we will not support your city. And we stand up for Troy Davis and what's right but this is bigger than Troy Davis. Mm -hmm. This situation is defiant in the South where they will not, they do not want to be moved. And they feel that they can do whatever they want in the court systems. Out of the 10 judges that ruled against Troy, from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, there was three judges, it was a two to one loss. And in the Georgia Supreme Court, it was seven judges and it was a four to three loss. <coughs> All of the judges that ruled against Troy were white male, except for one judge, and that was a black male judge in his 40s. And that black male judge is also the uh, lawyer for the governor of Georgia. And he was appointed to that judgeship by one of the white male judges that are actually on the bench. So they vote in blocks, and they never go on the facts of the case. They have already made their decision that they're not gonna allow my brother to be free because if they allow Troy to be free, they've botched this case so much that they can't try anybody else. And that's the problem. And the fact that they feel like if they find Troy to be innocent, that he would sue the state. And that's another problem. But what I ask people all the time is why is it that my brother's life is so insignificant? 
that you wouldn't even be willing to give him a chance. The Georgia Parole Board is the only entity, non-judicial entity in the state of Georgia that's actually able to act in secrecy. They have no documentation, no anything. And one of our senators has actually just introduced some legislation that would make them take notes, open up their books so that we will know what's going on. Because the Georgia uh, Parole Board is made up of five members, three of which are former police and two are former prosecutors. This is a case against police and prosecutorial misconduct, so what do you think they're gonna do? So I would just like to say that we're doing a lot of things. If the courts rule against us on June 25th, we will have another Global Day of Action on July 9th. And we'll be doing as much as we can to stir up as much as we can to help Troy. But if you can write to your US congressman wherever you are in your state, in your city, and ask them that we need to repeal this anti-terrorism bill and effective death penalty act, and cite Troy's case, cite other cases. You know, write to Eric Holder and let him know that we're in the South. And right now there is none. But what we also need to do is we also need to start where there's gonna be a bigger movement and we're gonna to have to start hitting the streets. You know, we're gonna to have to start hitting the streets. So I would just like to say, you know, on behalf of my family and my brother Troy, you know, just keep up the fight because he's so humble by everything that everybody is doing. And um, this is a picture, um, I have some left up here of some of these things, but an independent writer from Savannah, well, he's not from Savannah, um, but he moved to Savannah and he just looked into some things with Troy's case. And um, he did a synopsis of Troy's case and it was really, really interesting. But this picture um, is usually in color, but it's actually a picture of Troy and it has his mouth taped up. And what it's saying is like, all these people in the back know the truth about what's going on, but nobody will step forward. And here's Troy, his eyes are, if it was in color, bloodshot red. But the most significant part of this is that his mouth is taped shut because they won't give him an opportunity to have access to the media. Mm -hmm. So they won't let him tell his own story. And I think if he could tell his own story, Troy would be sitting right here among us right now. Mm -hmm. Because everybody that goes in to meet Troy, they immediately know that he shouldn't be there. So continue the fight and let people know that um, we don't have to, when we're fighting against the death penalty, you don't have to convince people who support the death penalty, you know, to sway to our side because they got five minutes of conversation. And our conversation goes on and on and on. But we need to start making our voices louder and louder and louder. And so I just want to thank all of you, and especially so many young people in here. And just, you know, as, as an older kid on the block, I want you to stick with it because I've been doing this work since I was 13, not knowing that I would be standing here one day talking about my own brother. Mm -hmm. But this is a fight that until the death penalty is abolished, we have to keep fighting and we need to keep as many of you in this fight as possible. And so I just wanna say thank you for allowing me to speak and thank you for all the work that you're doing for my brother and know that our world is bigger than theirs. And we believe in human rights and human dignity, and so we will win. Thank you.
have Marley Martin. A black man accused of killing a white police officer in the South, found guilty and given the death penalty. Everyone in this room knows how tough a case like that can be. Yet this is the case that is spearheading the fight to get rid of the death penalty in this country. This is the case that is showing the shame of legislation like the anti-terrorism and effective death penalty prisoner's ability to appeal his sentence, which has been a major obstacle for Troy and many others in trying to prove their innocence. Legislation passed by Clinton, uh, Democratic President Clinton in 1996. A black man accused of killing a white police officer who would think that this would be the case? But it is this very case that is gathering both national and international attention. It is this case that is showing the ugly truth about what the death penalty is in this country, that it's used against those that are poor, overwhelmingly given to people of color, and too often those that are innocent. It is this case that is revealing that most executions take place in the South just like lynching once did. Now how can it be that this is the case, a case of a black man accused of killing a white police officer? How can that be that this is the case that's spearheading this fight? And that's the big reason why. That's the big reason why. Martina Carrera. Martina told me once that, well, she told a group of us that, um, uh, people go, when they find out who she is, they're like, wow, you know, you're Martina Correa? Y you know, you're, you're Troy's sister? And um, so she said she just wants to have a t-shirt that's made up that says, um, I'm the sister, because so many people say that to her. And I told her, well, then I want to have one that made, a t-shirt made up that says, I know Troy's sister. <laughs> her determination is contagious and we've all caught the virus. The world has caught the virus. Well, I've caught another virus too, but. Um, Martina, Troy, and her family stand in the tradition of other family members before them who have stood up for justice against the odds. The Scottsboro Boys, nine youth, framed for rape and given the death penalty in Alabama. Those mothers stood up and spoke out. Emmett Till, who was lynched in Mississippi when he was 14 years old in 1955. In a climate of racial tension, when others told her it would be better to be quiet because Emmett, when he was lynched, was brutally disfigured. But she insisted that his coffin be open and thousands came by to look. And she did this even though it was incredibly painful because she wanted everyone to see what racism looked like, the ugly face of racism. She stood up and spoke out. And today, there are other fighters in the same tradition. Jack Bryson, are you in the room, Jack Bryson? Yay, Jack Bryson. Okay, awesome. I'm excited to meet you. I know all about you. Um, Jack Bryson is the father uh, of two boys that were on the platform the night Oscar Grant was shot and killed by a BART, police transit, a BART transit police officer. 
Um, he and other members of his family have been organizing and speaking out against this outrage and demanding that charges be brought against this officer. And a judge just ruled that he will seek charges against Meserly, the officer who pulled his gun and shot Oscar with no provocation or justification whatsoever. Joining with them that we have gotten this far. And of course, the struggle to win justice for Troy and for Oscar Grant, we think of others languishing behind bars, some under the sentence of death and some with unduly harsh sentences. Mumia Abu Jamal, who has now served over 25 years in prison, we'll be hearing from him in a little bit, was recently denied a new trial, even though racism permeated his trial. Stanley Howard, who we'll be, we'll be hearing from also, who was declared innocent and pardoned, but remains in prison because the courts refused to apply the 16 years that he wrongfully served on death row to the current sentence that, he, that keeps him in prison today. Sisters Jamie and Gladys Scott, they're in prison in Mississippi on bogus charges of robbery, serving double life sentences. No one was killed. They have already spent 14 years in prison. Santos Reyes, who took a driver's test for his cousin, and because of the three strikes in your outlaw in California, well, and everywhere else, um, he serves a 25 to life sentence for taking a driver's test for a cousin who couldn't um, read English. He has been in prison now for over a decade in California. Our prisons are filled with minorities and people that are poor. Eugene Debs, an American socialist at the turn of the century, described our criminal justice system as a net that catches the minnows and lets the whales go free. Martha Stewart and Bernie Madoff uh, are the exceptions overall. Walk into any prison and you'll see that that's true. Prisons come, pr prisoners almost entirely come from the poor and the working class. The rich control the courts and the poor populate the prisons. Debs also said, it's not so much crime in its general sense that is um, penalized, uh, penalized, but poverty, which lies at the bottom of most crimes. And the numbers are really staggering. We are the only country that locks up so much of its population. We have 5% of the world's population, but 25% of its prisoners. More than 2.3 million people are locked up, 7 million in prison, jail, or probation. We are the only country that allows juveniles as young as 13, 13 years old, to get life without the possibility of parole sentences. And the United States now has over 2,000 juvenile LWAP, life without possibility of parole, um, uh, people that are locked up. And all of those, interestingly enough, that are 13 and 14, all of them that got those sentences, not surprisingly, are African American. So why? Why do we lock up so many people? Does it make our streets safer? Does it drive down crime? No, it doesn't. In fact, even though the United States locks up so many people and for longer sentences than anywhere else, it still has high rates of crime, especially violent crime in comparison to other industrialized country, countries. Instead of treatment for drug offenders, we use prison. And instead of mental health care, we use prison. The statistics, again, are shocking. 
Half a million people are in jail on drug charges. Half a million, and many for merely possession and distribution. Fourths of whom are African American. This is another horrifying statistic. 13% of all drug users are African American, but they're 35% of those arrested, 55% of those convicted, and 74% of those serving prison sentences. In terms of mental illness, one-sixth of all prisoners suffer mental illness. Four times as many mentally ill people are in prison than are in, than are in mental um, hospitals, a direct consequence of our having no comprehensive health coverage in this country. Prisoners are literally being warehoused. There are few educational programs and paltry uh, drug treatment. And it means that people leave prison much worse off than when they went in. And then when they get out of prison, they've got a record, record so they're lucky if they can find a job. And in most states, they're not going to be allowed to vote. So what is really society saying to these folks? Really, you're a nobody. You know, you don't fit in. And that's partly what we see is why this recidivism is so high, people going, returning right back into prison. We need to demand that our society stop setting people up to fail, and then when they do fail, blame them for it by imprisoning them and giving them no way to live and work in a normal way ever again. We need to say to our politicians, no more of the hush-hush, I agree with you, I agree with you, um, you know, that we should abolish the death penalty. I don't like life without parole sentence either. I, I agree with you about three strikes, these are rock drug laws, but you know what, I just can't vote for that bill right now, you know, but I, I appreciate your efforts, no. You know, we need to build a social movement that forces them to do what's right. And that means to stop using the tough on crime and the war on drugs sloganeering to keep yourself in office. Office. Right. Come on. Right. Stop it. It's time to call the war on drugs what it is, a sham, and the death penalty a barbaric relic of the past. Our criminal justice system is criminal. It has no justice in it whatsoever. We have to demand that the problems of crime start to be discussed like the weather is in this country. Notice when you get a weather report on the news, big charts. There's a low pressure system brewing in the west. It's going to be sweeping over the Great Plains and there'll be showers later on today. We have the tools to enable us to forecast the weather. Well, guess what? We also have the tools to forecast crime. Shitty public schools, overcrowded, underfunded, overwhelmed and inadequate foster care system, poor services for the poor, too few drug treatment programs. You have all of this going on, and as a prisoner wrote to me, you know, that's why kids join gangs. People come from broken families. They need help, and as he was saying to me, I need help, we need help, my family needs help, not incarceration. We see our government has plenty of money to bail out the banks, GM, AIG, it's put, they're just too big to fail, meaning they're just too important. Well, why aren't ours too?
pizza care, rising health care, foster care, pantry programs, and the list goes on. In a society with such massive inequality, police and prisons and the death penalty serve a purpose. Um, one philosopher said, uh, law is an, an invention of the strong to chain and rule the weak. The law has a veneer, right? The law has a veneer of fairness. And another philosopher said, and I like this, it came from Paul D'Amato. Well, he told me about it, but this philosopher said, like, law just has a veneer of, of fairness, like the law that says it's illegal for anyone uh, to sleep outside on a park bench. But once, once we begin to question why are the rich not penalized in the same way, more than 15 people are killed every day in work-related injuries. This is according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's 6,000 Americans killed every year. And OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, found that the average fine for deadly violations is just over what? $11,000. Why, why are there crimes that go on in society that are seen as totally appropriate? When we start to ask those questions, we run up against the very logic of the capitalist system that needs the working poor to exploit, to amass profit, and it needs a mass of unemployed that serves as a constant threat to those that are working. You don't want the job? Guess what? Somebody else will take it. And if you don't want that, guess what? There's prison. You know, you're free to starve or go to prison. In our struggle, we also have to ask ourselves what we're striving for. And in our questioning and in our struggle, we have to engage in debate and discussion. We want abolition, but what does that mean? Does it mean we have to embrace law and order measures? Does it mean that we want to call for more police on the streets? Do we, does that, is that what it means? Do we have to put forward harsh and unjust sentences like life without the possibility of parole? Is that really what we want in our movement? I say no. Instead of calling for those repressive measures, why not talk about the things we do want and get to the root causes of crime? Why not talk about, instead of more cops, we need more social workers, we need better paying jobs and drug treatment programs. That's what we need. So in conclusion, I believe I can find my conclusion. Every movement needs to have a vision. Darby's here. Every movement needs to have a vision of where it wants to go. At one meeting uh, recently, a person said, you know, you need to write that down, what it is, so you don't forget and kind of like, so you don't get co-opted into, you know, you know, going down, you know, get, being a sellout or something. But you need to write that down and bring it home. And every once in a while at home, you need to pull it out and you need to look and to look, look at it to remind yourself of what you want. And I like held up. We need to bring that into our movement fight. 
We need to bring that into our meetings and in the course of the struggle to win abolition. I think it's important to also put forward a different vision of the kind of society we want to live in. One that offers every human being the potential to be all that they can be and to provide safe environments to those suffering mental illness so they don't harm themselves or others. Our struggle to win justice for Troy has to continue to grow and continue um, and, and to continue in its insistence for Troy and for all other Troys, for an abolition to the death penalty and for a society that doesn't need the death penalty or prisons. Abolition now, free Troy Davis. Abolition now, free Troy Davis. Abolition now, free Troy Davis. Okay, so um, Mumia is expected to call, uh, call at any moment, but um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, invite Darby Tillis up here, uh, if he doesn't mind. And uh, um, in, in, in the, this is the only time I'll, I'll say that in the hopes that he'll be interrupted. Um, but then we'll be we'll sure to get back to, uh, to Darby um, uh, after, after if we are interrupted by the calls from, from Mumia and Stanley. So um, Darby Tillis. Oh. Of course. I'm, I'm assuming everybody knows who Darby is. Darby is the first exoneree uh, uh, from um, Illinois, the first of, of 12 that led to the, the, um, the, uh, the moratorium that still stands in um, place. And he, he, he himself, he, did, uh, he faced four trials more than any other person uh, uh, you know, I guess in the history of the United States um, before he was eventually completely exonerated, vindicated, and released. Since then, he hasn't stopped fighting for, for justice and an end to the death penalty. It's my great honor to introduce Darby Tellis. Good evening. The death penalty is nothing compared to that damn expressway out there. <laughs> My name is Darby Tillis, Minister of Justice, Minister of Love. <laughs> I love you. love you. Give me some love back. We love you. <laughs> For many years, this country has been struggling with the death penalty. In 1972, the United States Supreme Court struck down every death penalty statute in the country. In 1976, the Supreme Court accepted a new kind of capital punishment statute. 38 states reenacted the death penalty. Illinois was one. This led states to change their execution, and in 1977, states restarted executions. What emerged was supposed but the justice system continued to reflect the problems in society as a whole. 10 years later, 1987, 
Myself, Darby Tillis, and my co-defendant, Perry Cobb, made them out of a big old lie. We was released from death row after suffering the same problems that existed before the reenactment of the death penalty prosecution, misconduct and racism was still as usual. So many times prosecutors, judges, policemen commit legal sin. They hide evidence and manufacture evidence. Prosecutors game the system. They produce dangerous outcomes. Their conduct is outrageous. Prosecutors are entrusted with a great power and it's sad to abuse it in abusing, abusing people. For 31 years, I've suffered the effects of the death penalty. Nine years, one month, and 17 days in the dungeon of hell. 22 years living in the shadows of death row. The psychological effects never go away. I have found that some men who are custodians of the judicial system have bloodlust in their hearts, motivated by greed for power and monetary gain, and they'll do whatever it takes to win in a trial of law. Today, I am the living dead. Once you've been sentenced to death after putting up the most stressful fight of your life, First, you began to suffer loss. Number one, the promise of life. You're no longer a participant of life. You're an observer. It's Lee. Hey, how are you? Okay, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to put you on speakerphone, okay? I've got a big crowd here. And um, one sec. One greeting, okay? Ready? Go. Red by red. as well. So if you'd like to, okay. you know, kick it off with some words, um, go ahead. All right. Thank you. We're all alive at an amazing hour in American and world history. Like many of our grandparents, in my case, my parents, we 
Martina, you've talked to me a couple of times before on the telephone, but I wanted to just tell you that we're still fighting for you. Um, my brother Troy gave me a message for you yesterday that 
that the cases of Mumia Abu-Jabal, Troy Anthony Davis, and others like them are going to break down the death penalty system in this country, and that people are going to demand justice and hold the United States accountable for the racist injustice system and the application of the death penalty. So, you know, we're fighting, and just like you said, that we have to start getting out, and we have to be the voice of change. We have to make change come, and people are going to demand it, and we're not going to be sit down and we're not going to be quiet and we're just going to keep fighting so i just would like to say you know on behalf of my brother my family and all the work that we're doing that it's because of cases like yours and cases like troy's that people see the injustice and the death penalty and that's why we're going to end it thank you so much sister Martina. that was beautiful and heartwarming and please when you talk to your brother give him my love and tell him that the world is on someone um, that I'm gonna that's gonna be on the mic but um, actually speaking to us from um, Pontiac prison Stanley Howard from Dixon prison one of the um, death row ten so hang tight okay and we're gonna try and see if, you can hear if we can make this work okay okay put him up to the mic um, Julian go ahead go ahead Stanley
say something back to Stanley? to bring up to say hello to you, Mumia, um, who is um, uh, one of the sort of uh, core uh, fighters of our group, someone who is kind of the heart and soul of our movement, the first exoneree from Illinois' death row, uh, Darby Tills, who's standing right here by me. He's coming right up to the mic. Hello, Mumia. This is your brother from Philadelphia, 429 Bud Street, Tilly from Philly. Yes, Philadelphia. <laughs> yes, sir, brother. Yes, sir. Uh, I was just talking to Harold Wilson about you the other day. And we're out here fighting. Harold Wilson. Big Harold Wilson. My man, Big Harold. Big Harold. Yes, sir. Keep it coming. Yes, sir. Please give him my love, for real. Yes, sir. And uh, anything we can do for you, just let us know through the campaign. We're certainly going to be supporting you 100%. And just be strong and keep the fight going. Thank you, brother. Thank you very much. They're about to turn this thing off. I love you all. God bless you. God bless you. Peace and love. Brick by brick. Wall by wall. had a chance to pick it up. Uh, Haymarket Books has uh, um, Mubia's latest title, Jailhouse Lawyers Defending Pr uh, Prisoners Defending Prisoners versus the U.S. Um, it's an amazing book and people should go check it uh, check it out uh, at Haymarket. Um, and uh, I guess we're going to hand it back to, to Darby who was uh, interrupted like we thought he was. I get back to the speech. 
those two powerful brothers. I only spent nine years there. They've spent over 20. Troy, Mamir, Stanley Howard, and they still have fire, they still have a voice that's stronger than all the rest of the brothers that's been exonerated. I wonder what kind of fuel they have in them. They're strong men. We must continue to support them to set them free. Meanwhile, as I said today, I am the living dead. Once you've been sentenced to death after putting up the most stressful fight of your life, first you begin to suffer loss. The promise of life, you're no longer a participant of life, just an observer. You've lost your family and all your creature features you've acquired down through the years of toil and gain. You have no future. Each day you work hard to protect images of a fading world. Your past and present, all your thoughts are nullified and blanketed with pain and agony. You're drained of energy from trying to be human. Your relationship with life have been disrupted before being fulfilled by a flawed, unfair, unjust system made up by cruel, criminal-minded people. And secrecy, your hunger for the past, good times, bad times, but soon your memories are buried under the rubble of everyday struggle. But one day I began to focus my energy in developing strategies that would liberate my mind, my soul, as well as myself. I want to thank you all. Today, I'm just a black ember that was used to fuel an unjust system. It's painful sometimes, but thanks to the campaign and good people like you that helped to energize me and I guess almost a hundred more exonerees to walk in the room and I know you. It's been 10 years, haven't it? that I've been involved with you. You feel like sisters and brothers. And to talk to Mike Starks in DC, to talk to my brother in California, to go to Georgia with Patrick Dye, and so many other people, David, Mena J, uh, Ileana, Sarah, 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 so many of y'all. <laughs> that have helped me, uh, Alice, Noreen, Maureen. I mean, y'all don't know what y'all do to a man whose soul had died. 
These people are body snatchers and flesh merchants. That's what they are. Kidnapping, using, abusing people for their own gain and power. And people walk around every day as if this doesn't exist. Regardless of how we try to speak out, regardless of how many times we're on television, death penalty. It don't concern me, that's court's business. Until their family members are snatched up and abused. Thank you. special. Dark days are long. Try to 
important uh, announcements before we head into, to, uh, we do have time left for some discussion, but I just want to let people know, uh, first off, that the campaign to end the death penalty has a table out in, in the, on the book area, Haymarket area. Uh, people should definitely check it out, some of the great material they have out, that we have out there. Um, in addition, tomorrow, uh, Saturday in the morning at 9.30, um, there's a, a panel uh, called Challenging the American Injustice System. We've got uh, Lee Wengraff, uh, um, New York's Lee Wengraff, Patrick Dyer from Atlanta, and also um, Jack Bryson, who was introduced by Martina, or, uh, uh, I'm not say, by Marlene earlier. Um, so that's, that's uh, one that should not be missed. Um, and uh, next, I'd like to recognize Ben Davis, who will be um, uh, uh, making a pitch for funds. Um, gosh, you meet so many amazing people when you're uh, in the fight against the death penalty. It's just such an honor to be here with people like Martina Floss and people like Darby. What you do not meet when you're in the fight against the death penalty is a lot of rich people. <laughs> um, you know, so I'm here to just make a very brief pitch for funds. Um, I really like what Martina said when she said, our world is bigger than theirs. Mm -hmm. And I think we also do more with our money than they do. <laughs> and I want everybody to, everybody has a sustainer form in front of them, or should. And I want everybody just to take a moment to really just pick up the form and look at that column on the left. And look at those five boxes that says what your contribution would do. And just take a second to look at it. Think about what a little thing that is, what small things they represent, but also how important they are. You know, I have, I have a pen pal in New York named Joseph Striplin, who had life without parole. And he tells me, you know, when I get the new abolitionist, I feel like I'm part of the struggle. And when he writes me, he signs his letters. Joseph Striplin, campaigned in the death penalty, Harlem chapter. <laughs> and awesome. you just think about what that means for someone who has life without parole, who has no legal hope of getting out of prison. Mm -hmm. Think of what an important thing that is. You really know um, how, to, how important you know, supporting that kind of fight is. So if you 
Our goals are very modest for this conference. We just we want something like 10 or 15 people to sign up. That would be that would meet our goal. And if you become one of those 10 or 15 people, um, you get a free book, uh, a free copy either of John Grisham's book, The Innocent Man, or Mumia Abu Jamal's excellent book, Jailhouse Lawyers. You get the tax-deductible donation, and as one of our members in New York, Carolyn says, better that you give it to us than give it to Uncle Sam. You know what they do with the money. <laughs> and finally, and most importantly, you get to know that when they say death row, you really said. <laughs> That's right. So please sign up, come and approach me, pick up your book. Okay, next I'd uh, um, like to open it up uh, for discussion. Uh, um, actually, Jack, can you, want, you want to say something? You want to come up? How you doing, everybody? My name is Jack Bryson. Um, my two sons were with Oscar Grant the night he was murdered, along with um, five other people. My oldest son, Jackie, he was inches away. He was right next to Oscar like this. When Oscar was murdered, right in front of him. After they were murdered, these young men were taken to jail and weren't charged. They left there. But this is kind of, I mean, I'm sorry about my brother, you know, and it's a trick what the system does to us, you know, like going through this trial, like they lied on Troy, and on my way over here, on the airplane, I was reading on um, my book, um, The Rainbow, and this man is innocent, her brother's innocent. But the system doesn't matter to the system. Mm -hmm. You know, like in my, how can you shoot someone and you've been shot? Mm -hmm. And what matters to them is just to put them away. It doesn't matter. A black man's life mm -hmm. nothing to the system. Mm -hmm. Just like Oscar Grant. While we're sitting in court, the same thing these police officers said about Mumaya, I'm pretty sure about Troy Smith, Stanley Tukey Williams, um, the young man um, who just got off the phone, Stanley Howard. These same officers, excuse my language, tried that same bullshit in the courtroom. They said Oscar was reaching for a gun. Um, even after they shot Oscar, they said he was still reaching for something. That's why they, they he's, he's dead. He has his hands behind his back. And you're still saying he's resisting. This is what these police officers do. And one thing I can say, if Troy, Mumaya, and the brothers and sisters all over the world would have videos, our jail cells would be empty. So I just want to acknowledge and um, just encourage everyone to keep fighting because if, if like Mumaya said, I was looking at his book, he asked, you know, one day he called the radio station, I was listening, and they asked him, like, where is he? Like, no, not really, I'm not the boutique fighter. And we'll have a struggle. I mean, he'll, he'll be okay. And I admire men like you, you my stand, who just, no matter what, they keep fighting and fighting and fighting. And that's what encourages me you know, to come here and meet everybody and just see different backgrounds. It doesn't matter what gender you are, what color you are, 
just everyone coming together for one reason and one cause and have the freedom and you know what was right. So thank you very much. Somebody, uh, a good friend of the campaign and the ISO, just snuck in the back. Uh, in the back, we have uh, Suja Graham, uh, exonerated director of police. I think I saw Phyllis, uh, but I think she also snuck away uh, before I could catch her. Um, all right, next, I'd like to recognize Lily Hughes from Austin. Lily.
Because without those movements, without the work that we're doing in the street, does, do they really think that these movements in the legislature would have a chance at all? All this spring we worked on legislation around the law of parties, which was the law that Kenneth Foster was uh, sentenced under. And there is no way that a law like that would have even have been considered if it hadn't been for the Kenneth Foster fight that came before it. Everything is connected. We all have our place in this movement, and there is obviously there are going to be people that are doing legal work, and there are going to be people that are doing, um, you know, uh, work in the legislature. But there are also going to be people in the streets. There are going to be family members and exonerates who are going to be given a voice. And I don't think that we should put victims' families on a pedestal above the family members who are victims as well. And I just think that we should remember that that's the kind of movement we want to build that challenges life without parole, that challenges harsh sentences, that talks about the whole system, that talks about the problems with police and prosecutors, and that isn't trying to embrace those people and bring them into the movement because we want to help limit appeals and talk about costly appeals and that kind of thing. So our movement here is really, really important, and I just want to thank everybody for being at this meeting. This is amazing. I have chills. So. <laughs> This is the second time that I'm aware of where there's been a meeting like this where two um, prisoners have called in from different prisons and actually talked to each other. The other one I think was back in 1998 when, uh, um, and I'm, I'm dying, it was like it was uh, a prisoner from California and, and, uh, um, and, and Tyrone Gilliam. And actually both those prisoners are no longer with us, but they had been participating in Life from Death Row. Um, back then, so even as we we carry the um, uh, some bitter um, defeats, we also have gathered our strength and learned important lessons, and are taking the struggle forward for justice to end the death penalty, but also to build a, a world that doesn't need the death penalty, um, um, a, a better world altogether. And you know, as as Ben said, uh, made it um, really clear. No, uh, the campaign to end the death penalty does an amazing job of doing so much with so precious little um, compared to to um, a, a similar organizations. So um, please take your, your sustainer forms um, very seriously. Um, fill them out. If you can uh, give them to Ben, uh, in the, who's by, by the table, on your, on your way out, um, that, would be, that would be great. Um, or you can drop them off at the campaign uh, table over the weekend, but, but uh, sooner is, is better. Um, and uh, I guess that, that wraps us up. Um, some, oh, oh, Martina wanted to say something. I just wanted I just wanted to say um, two quick things. Um, well, Troy talked to Stanley Howard in DC oh, at American yeah. University. <laughs> so that happened a couple of months ago. Um, but also I want to say, we have to find different unique ways to fight this fight. Um, it's kind of like a chopping down. So we have to find different ways that they, do, they use to uh, uh, execute the death penalty. They cannot have the death penalty if they don't have physicians to actually participate. You need to target and find out who the physicians are in your state that are helping with the executions. Because in Georgia, there's a Dr. Mullins, and we found out that he was getting $18,000 per execution in Georgia. And we found out about this, and we targeted him and his company and his company was actually listed at his house, so we picketed his house in Atlanta. Uh, and, um, 
and the picketing was 24 hours and he lived in Fulton County and like two days later, Fulton County enacted this ordinance where you couldn't picket in their neighborhood, but it made such an impact because they were trying to protect him. But we had several of his employees who refused to come to the prison to help assist with the execution of Troy. So he'd have been there with himself and like one other nurse and usually they take five people. But also what we did was we targeted him where we could never get a meeting with him before, but because they had so much pressure, he called Georgians for all terms of the death penalty and said, okay, I wanna have a meeting with you because I can't take this pressure. And then Troy got to stay, so he backed off the meeting. But the Department of Corrections called and they said, well, we wanna sit down and try to figure something out. So if Troy is to receive another death warrant, that will be another target, but you can also do that in your own state because what you need to do is find out who those doctors are, put their name out in the media, put their name out in the communities, write to the American Medical Association and saying you're not supposed to be participating and this doctor's participating and demand their license be removed. Even if they don't revoke their license, you're putting pressure on them and they understand that. So they cannot execute without physicians. Um, secondly, if any of you are going to be in the D.C. area on June 29th, there will be, uh, I think June 29th through the first part of July, there will be um, people in front of the U.S. Supreme Court for like four or five days opposing the death penalty. And so they'll be camping out there, they'll be staying in the United Methodist Center taking showers and things, but they'll have a presence there. And if for any reason there's a decision that comes down against Troy, they will all, they'll be there already to make a statement, but they're there every year. Um, at that time. So make sure that you do things. Go on, um, uh, the NAACP has a new um, website called IamTroy.com. And um, if you go on that, you can find out everything they're doing all across the country uh, for Troy. And um, someone even called me this morning starting Troy, a Twitter account. And I said, like, I don't want to have anything to do with Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you can do it if you want to. They, they're going to do it. But anyway, I want you to know that with the IamTroy.com, they're even getting celebrities to go to the BET Awards to wear I Am Troy shirts. So, um, so we, are, um, we are definitely making an impact and things are happening and it's because of all of you. You know, um, when I walk past people and I see a I Am Troy Davis shirt, people ask me all the time, you know, what does that mean? And it's because all of us could be Troy. You know, and that's, that's the situation, you know. And so I want people to understand that when they're wearing a shirt that says I Am Troy Davis or I Am Troy, people understand that it's an opportunity for you to tell the story and not just about Troy because there's a whole lot of Troys on death row. And so, and you know, I just like to say to Jack, when I saw him yesterday, I was walking the Target out in Oakland. So that shows you how small um, and how big and far reaching our organization is and, and our networking. And you know, um, I love Darby and Suja and all the other exonerees. And you know, out of 133 death row exonerees, I've probably met close to 100. And for that not to make an impact on our global society says a whole lot about our communities mm -hmm. and that we really need to get that out. But like I said, find alternatives ways to fight the death penalty and targeting those physicians is a really, really good thing for you to do. So a couple of quick announcements. Um, uh, again, uh, remember the, uh, the, um, the July 9th uh, day of action. I guess if there's an adverse decision in, in uh, Troy's case, mark your calendar, J July 9th. 
Um, also, um, the campaign's website is uh, um, uh, nodeathpenalty.org, easy to remember. Um, pick up a copy of The New Abolitionist, an invaluable and amazing resource in the fight against the death penalty. And from, um, from the organizers of SO9, some schedule changes. Um, Jeremy Scahill's talk on occupation rebranded is moved to 7.30 tonight in the Grand um, Central Room, so I guess that's here. Um, Sean Harkin's meeting on who was Leon Trotsky is moved to Sunday um, at 11.45 in Stevens, uh, I think that's 7, um, 2, okay. All right, and uh, um, Dar Jamal's meeting on eyewitness into our Iraq tomorrow, 11.30 a.m. is canceled. Um, so Dar is canceled. Uh, and then uh, take advantage of the buffet specials tonight in the hotel, <laughs> exclamation part. point. Okay, um, so let's finish it up properly as abolitionists. One last chance. Um, they say death row. We they say death row. We The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.